Welcome to the Coast Talk Talk podcast. I'm your host, Nick Swinmurn, otherwise known as Coast Talk. I've been a lifelong entrepreneur. Whether it's sports, tech, food, fitness, I've got a bunch of passions. I've also been fortunate enough to invest in some of my favorite sports teams. Along the way, I've met a bunch of great people, whether athletes, entrepreneurs, executives, and we hope to dive into their stories on our show. You'll hear backstories, successes, and failures throughout our discussions. Please subscribe, rate, and review if you enjoy listening to the show. This is Coast Talk Talk. Welcome back to Coast Talk Talk. Today, we're joined by Parag Morate, President of 49ers Enterprises, Executive Vice President of Football Operations, and Leeds United Vice Chairman, one of the longest titles we've ever had on this show, possibly the longest title in sports at the moment. Parag, how's it going? Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. We could take 20 minutes just doing the title. I know. We could. We, uh, it, was, it was only a couple takes on my end, so that was, um, that was pretty good. Well, if you want to just uh, quickly introduce yourself, um, it could be anything from, from birth to yesterday, but just a quick intro, and then we'll just hop in and, and see where the conversation goes. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you guys having me on. Uh, it'll be fun. It'll be fun. I uh, I am excited to be here. I've been in I've been in the sports world for over twenty years now. Uh, this is uh, officially the year that's half my life that I've been with the 49ers, My twenty second year with the Niners. So wow. it's kind of crazy to think about it that way. But uh, I grew up a stone's throw away from 49ers uh, headquarters, and so it's I'm still sort of living out. Uh, I guess my fantasy football dream, uh, and now it's a it's a little bit a uh, little bit more global as we spend a lot of time with Leeds as well, which I'm excited to have you as part of that, and it's pretty fun. I've uh, I thought that my stress would be limited to just 17 NFL games a year, um, and now my wife hates the fact that I picked up another 38 uh, <laughs> with Leeds United games that are on at like four in the morning or whatever time here, so. But, you know, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I do I do love what I do. That is the hardest part. You got to get up at 4 a.m. or 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. on a weekend. And what happens in the next 90 minutes dictates the feel of the rest of your weekend. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. You grew up in the Bay Area, lifelong 49ers fan. I think I, I read you've been to or you've watched almost every game since you were like six years old or something. Yeah, you know, it's funny, like my parents, uh, I, I, I literally grew up such a big sports fan. I, I would devour the sports page front to back every morning while I ate my Fruity Pebbles. Uh, and, and I just, I would love the, reading the box scores and the stat lines. I, I, I watched every single Niners game uh, since I was six years old. You know, I, my parents never believed in, uh, I guess, with a... They didn't ever buy us tickets and buy me tickets to go to games, so I have it so I have to watch uh, on TV. And so it was just the funny thing. The irony is that you know I I'm I get to do uh, the same thing that I did as a kid. I just get paid for it now. Uh, but it is it, I, I I'm not sure I've missed a 49ers game in in a lot of years. So it's been fun. I I uh, I never really attended a training camp or can I remember there's one time I used to attend a few A's games if you remember A. The A's had those like $2 Tuesdays uh, yeah. way back in the day for kids. So my parents would at least buy those tickets, uh, but that was pretty much it. I can understand it because in the 80s, so I, my, my dad was a huge 49ers fan or still is a huge 49ers fan, but I just, I think I'm a glutton for punishment. And so those games were over at halftime and I'd be like, this is too boring. The team's too good. I need a team that's <laughs> terrible. I want to go through the, the pain and suffering, I guess. And my dad was like, what are you talking about? It's great. Like, Halftime, you can go out, you can do whatever you need to do around the house, around the yard, because the game's over. But I couldn't, yeah. um, I couldn't get through it. So when you were, when you were growing up, what were you, uh, what did you want to be? What what did you think was in your future? So uh, it's funny. I uh, well, I grew up at a pizza restaurant. Basically, uh, that was my probably my third parent. Uh, my parents bought a round table pizza when I was ten years old, uh, and I started working there when I was eleven, uh, and I started managing wow. the restaurant when I was twelve, uh, and so. From 12 through 18, I was I, I lived at Roundtable. Uh, I did my homework there. I ate my meals there. I made friends there. I hired my friends. Uh, and so, you know, at that time, I didn't really know anything other than working at a pizza restaurant. I mean, it was literally my life. And uh, when I when I went on to college uh, and I saw them in 96, uh, my sophomore year, uh, Jerry Maguire came out with Cuba Gooding Jr. and Tom Cruise. And 
And I realized, shoot, there's this whole other world uh, where, you know, I, I was a, I played baseball and soccer through high school uh, and thought I thought I wanted to be a pro athlete. I, I tapped out at five, nine buck fifty. Um, and it was after I saw Jerry Maguire, I was like, wow, there's this whole other world of being a sports agent or a GM uh, where you don't need to just be an athlete. And so it was uh, at that time I thought I wanted to be a sports agent. So I applied to every uh, I applied for an internship uh, or wrote letters to every sports agent and sports agency in the Bay Area. Uh, you know, the biggest one I went to Cal. The biggest one was Lee Steinberg, uh, who was uh, who was at the time the biggest NFL agent. Uh, we joke around about it today, but he ignored my letters back then. <laughs> uh, and IMG, a big sports agency, sports marketing firm, wrote me back. Uh, I guess they were. Uh, I guess they appreciated my uh, commitment to sending multiple letters, and and so despite them not really having internships, uh, a mentor of mine, a mentor now of mine, uh, took a chance on me, and I interned at IMG for three years when I was at Cal, uh, thinking that I wanted to be a sports agent. But they did IMG at that time. The job they had for me was around corporate uh, representation. So when like Cadillac was sponsoring Tiger Woods or things like that, I was or. or uh, Network Associates uh, did the naming rights for the A's, the Oakland Coliseum at the time. So I worked on little projects like that. Um, and that was my start uh, in sports. You know, I, I really, I just, it was, it was exactly what I wanted to do is, is the business side of sports. Um, coming out, uh, so I did that for three years. Uh, after graduation, I realized that the sports world, uh, at least compensation wise, is very polarized. You either get paid very well or you do, you get barely enough money uh, to pay for your BART rides and a couple beers a week, which is what I was on. My salary at IMG for those three years was like a couple hundred bucks a month, something like that. Uh, and so I went into management consulting after graduation. But because of my IMG experience, any time that, uh, that uh, Bain & Company, that was the company I worked for, anytime Bain had a, a sports client, I was immediately the first person they put on that project. So Nike was a big Bain client. Uh, for a number of years, I think still is. And uh, so anytime uh, I worked on three different Nike projects when I was at Bain. And then just through, you know, a fortuitous turn of events, uh, the 49ers reached out to Bain. Bill Walsh and Terry Donahue reached out to Bain in 2001, early 2001, uh, to uh, they wanted to figure out a way to codify the value of draft picks. So not the players themselves, but when uh, teams make trades, so like the exchange rate, the currency value of what picks are worth when you make trades. Uh, and so Coach Walsh and, and had always been had a long uh, history uh, and great reputation of making draft day trades. Uh, but he always and he always did it with great intuition and everyone thought he was just shooting from the hip. And maybe he was, but he had a beautiful mind uh, and he always knew you know where the right value was. And so we came in. I was the junior kid on the team trying to figure out what is the algorithm behind the genius of Bill Walsh's mind uh, when they make trades. And so I was the 22-year-old kid working on that project. And when it was a three-month project, uh, when the, when the uh, project ended, they asked me to come over full-time. And like I said, it was a dream come true for me. And the rest is history. I've been here 22 years now. So three months to figure out what's going on inside a genius's mind. What What was the... What were the findings? Like, how did you, how did you take what he'd been doing and assign value to, to things? So, you know, it was interesting. So uh, the, we have all of Bill's, you know, Coach Walsh's trades that he had done in the prior, call it 25 years. Uh, and we just parked those for a minute. We first looked at, let's just look at the history of the draft and pick number one through 265 and, and what each pick is worth. And, and, and I'm sorry, what each player picked at that spot, how they ended up performing. So it's kind of like a big expected value um, analysis. And so, uh, you know, what we ended up doing is, is looking at the historical uh, returns of every pick. Uh, and, and so you had this old exchange rate currency value chart that someone had produced. Uh, nobody knew where it really what it was based on or where it came from, but it, it was the exchange rate that everybody in the NFL uses and used. Uh, and so we did is like try to look at what is the actual expected value of each pick and what, uh, and then as we realized it, what we came out with was that what everyone was using was a, uh, perfect hindsight chart. So if the first best player, if the best player was, 
uh, was actually picked first. If the second best player in that draft historically was picked second and so forth, the optimal chart was what this was what the chart that everyone was using. However, everybody knows that um, there is noise in data. And, and uh, when you make picks, sometimes you make mistakes. And so uh, when you pick someone who's when you pick someone with the fifth pick in the draft that uh, doesn't end up being the fifth best player in that draft, well, it actually creates two big ripple effects. It creates one because the expected value of that fifth pick goes down a little bit, but also the whoever was the fifth best player in the draft that year, maybe that person was picked at 105th, and now all of a sudden that raises the expected value of the 105th best player, uh, the 105th slot. Uh, so it was basically just more of a curve, uh, creating a curve that was more based on how picks are actually made historically because mistakes were made with expected value. Anyway, long story short, it came back to we created a new exchange rate uh, curve. We then went back and unparked all of the Coach Walsh's trades. And lo and behold, what we realized is that he had always been using this new exchange rate chart. He did whether or not he just he just had it in his brain um, and he had always been using it based on what the true expected value was, not the optimal value. And it was just something he had always done. And so what we were trying to do, it was three months later, I realized, well, all we were trying to do is replicate the genius of his mind. (laughs) And is that did that stay as a like a 49ers asset or is that what's kind of the standard now around the league of like, yeah, you know, we, I mean, everyone now has their own versions of charts. We still use the same one that, uh, that we built uh, many years ago with, with a few twists and, and things like that. But uh, at its core, we use uh, still the fundamentally the same chart. I was wondering that. So when, when teams are talking about, you know, here's the value of picks, there's not one central system. Every team has their own one, which is slightly different. Or yeah, every team has a one, uh, one that's slightly different. But everybody still needs to speak from the same language. So what's up, what's uh, interesting is that everybody still talks around that same old uh, point chart because it is still the it's like a gap accounting. It is the, still the generally accepted sort of exchange rate. Now everyone has their own twists, and so every team is trying to do a trade that is fair or plus or minus 1% on the uh, accepted exchange rate, but just maximize value on their own. Hmm. And so how, um, like over the years, has anyone successfully kind of gone against this and just and come up with a consistent system or is it? Yeah, I mean, it's everybody, like there are teams that do that do go against it. Yeah, that do just use their own, uh, that, that are making a bunch of trades and are, don't even seem fair on the old exchange rate. Uh, but are doing just based on whatever they think. And, you know, that's the, as you, as you and I both know, that's kind of the core to sports in general is like, you gotta, you gotta learn to ignore the noise, believe in what you believe in. Probably the same as for any entrepreneur is uh, ignore the noise. If you, if you believe what you were doing is right, you got to stay true north and stay committed to it and ignore everything else. So that old trade with the Cowboys and Vikings for Herschel Walker, was that, was that crazy based on the chart or was there some logic in there? Uh, no, there was, there, there was, there was some that it was crazy. That was crazy based on the chart. So was the old one for Ricky Williams. If you remember yeah, where the Saints traded yeah. the entire draft, uh, for the rights to, to draft Ricky Williams. There's always been some crazy outliers. Yeah. No, that's nuts. So back to round table. So when you were a 12 year old kid managing a restaurant, like what's going through your head? Are you, are you like, feeling kind of like resenting this? Are you excited about this? Are you just, this is just what I do every day? Great question. I guess three things come to mind for me. Number one uh, was wanting to prove uh, to all the employees there that I wasn't just there because I was the owner's kid. You know, there, so there was a big chip on my shoulder there because I like the fact that I was managing the restaurant and managing, you know, 18, 19, 25 year olds, uh, when I was 12 years old, I could barely see over the cash register. I had to stand to the side of it to help customers uh, because I couldn't see over it. So like there was that chip on my shoulder that uh, needing to prove that I belonged, that I could run this restaurant. So there, that was a that was a big part, you know, because I, I did the scheduling. I did the ordering. Uh, I did all, a lot of the prep. So I like I was literally uh, I did interviewing of, of delivery drivers and things like that. Uh, so needing to you need to prove that I actually belonged based on the merits of my leadership ability, not because I was my, uh, you know, the, the son of the owners. Second was uh, kind of family guilt, I guess you could say. So my my rule 
which I said to my parents was, yeah, my, what I saw from 10 and 11 before I really started getting into the business is my parents lived at the restaurant. And that made me feel crappy that they just, my dad had a job at the time at HP um, and would finish his work at five and then come to round table and stay there till 11 at night. So, I, you know, I just, I would, just, I felt bad. And so my rule when I, when I started working and running the restaurant was when I was there, my, my parents went home. Um, so I was never there when they were there. Partly because of the first point that I had, I didn't, I had the chip on my shoulder. I didn't want to just be the the, the owner's son, uh, but also because I wanted them to have time off, and so it was just family guilt. Uh, then the third is just I. It was it was like a way of life. It was like roundtable was like a sibling and a parent and a grandparent all at the same time. It was just what I did. I I didn't even really feel like uh, it was a choice. It was just sort of wrapped up into my way of life. So what did I do? I I tried to hire a bunch of my friends to make it more of a social community. I uh, shoot. I remember I would take. I, we would do uh, proms and winter formals after. You know, you'd go to summer dinner, you do the dance, and afterwards I'd have everyone over. I had the keys, and obviously we had uh, we had we had kegs on tap, and so everyone would come to the round table after after the proms and formals. It was just kind of the way of life. Yeah. That's funny. It reminded me. I think I had a friend in high school who had the keys to like, I think it was called Suzanne's Muffins or something else. And it was like, it was a disaster because you go there late at night and then the next morning he'd have to get up at, you know, before they opened. And, and, and <laughs> <laughs> Yep. So, so you went to, um, you know, when you got this internship while in college and your passion is sports, they give you some focus on kind of corporate things. Mm -hmm. Where did this skill with data come from? Was that like something that just kind of happened along the way or were you always interested in, in the numbers and, and, you know, how did you grow into that? I, yeah, I wouldn't. I, so I think I would just, I guess I was just always really interested in, in data numbers and stats, I guess, like always asking the question why, you know, um, I was the guy who would always read the box scores, like I said, in, in the newspaper and, and would always want to see the baseball stats leaders and, and, uh, and why, uh, who was picked for the all-star games, why they, why they were picked, which stats mattered. I played wiffle ball all the time in my and it was around my neighborhood. And we always had a little binder paper we taped to the, uh, to the garage door and we would actually track our, you know, our at bats and our home wow. runs and doubles and strikeouts. And then at the end of every day, I would give everyone their stats. Uh, and I just, I just was into that for some reason. Um, and then, you know, coming here, just, Asking the question why, you know, just be, sports is very big on inertia and history. Um, and so sometimes you don't really ask the question why here in sports. You just you just kind of do uh, because you do because it's been done a way, that way for a long period of time. And so one of the things that I've sort of made my career on is just asking why. Just because something's been done for a long period of time in a certain way doesn't necessarily mean it's the best way to do it. And so just revisiting everything and, you know, not just from the, on the football side, but even on the business side, as we were trying to think about where to finance, build a new stadium, uh, where to build, how to finance it, how to sell it. And, you know, just asking the question, why of, of is there is there a better way to do things similar to, to what we're trying to do with Leeds United right now? Yeah. And what advice would you give people who find themselves in a organization? They've got a, their own perspective. And sometimes, you know, asking why is not well received, especially for someone just coming in. Like what what were some lessons there that you learned on how to how to do that in a way that doesn't kind of turn the establishment against you? <laughs> That's a great question. And I think I'm not sure there's a good answer to it, because uh, other than saying there will be a period of time where the establishment is against you. You know, I I was that kid. I didn't play high school or college or pro football. I don't have a relative who did. And I'm brown. I'm not I'm, I'm not African-American. I'm not white. And so there's not many of us in the NFL. Right. And I'm and here I am sitting around asking all these questions. Uh, and so, yeah, it, there was a lot of noise. And I had to I, uh, it wasn't like I was always really good at tuning out the noise. I would say it definitely impacted me probably the first decade of my career. Uh, and, and, you know, I would never listen to sports radio, and uh, but I would have my friends and my mom listen to it, and they would think that I'm, uh, they would ask me the next morning or that afternoon, they would call me and ask me if I'm okay, and I'd be like, what are you talking about? And it'd be because they were roasting me on sports radio. Uh, <laughs> and so, 
uh, it's just, yeah, you just, you just have to, same thing, like I said, if, if whether it's uh, working in sports, working in a new industry or being an entrepreneur, if you believe in what you believe in, you just keep your head down and keep plowing forward. Uh, but yeah, there's going to be a time when the establishment is, uh, is against you and you just have to stay committed to what you believe in. Was there anyone early on who, you know, any mentors or someone who, who kind of eased that process for you? Uh, yeah, you know, uh, I would say that, uh, Terry Donahue, uh, the GM of the 49ers at the time, he believed, uh, in me, coach Walsh believed in me. They gave me a chance, um, and allowed me to work in football operations, which at the time was usually reserved for either people who played in the sport or people who are related to someone who played in the sport. And they gave me a chance. Um, and then, uh, Dr. York, Jed's father, uh, who was the owner and chairman at the time when I started. Uh, and he really believed in me and, and uh, gave me a chance and, and uh, gave me uh, responsibility uh, as, we were, as we were building out our business organization to prepare ourselves to figure out how to build a stadium. Uh, really just valued my opinion and gave me a chance. And so, you know, I'm forever grateful for, to, to all of those for giving me that chance. When you got into the 49ers, you've been a lifelong fan. Did you see it as like, <clears throat> I'm here I'm not going anywhere or you just see it as, you know, this is a step in my career and, and I don't quite know yet if I want to be here forever or if I want to, did you see it as a long term? Yeah. I think I still look at it that way. And I've looked at it where it's always been, I'm enjoying what I'm doing in the moment. I try to stay as present as possible. So including from back in 2001, just really enjoying the moment, but I'm not really thinking about, I don't know what I want to do one year from now, five years from now. Uh, 10 years from now. It's just, am I enjoying the moment? Am I able to have an impact? Is my voice heard? And that's kind of, that's kind of how I've lived my, lived my career so far is I'm not really thinking about where I'm going to be a year from now. I'm just thinking about, am I enjoying what I'm doing right now? Yeah, it's interesting because my, my first job was with the San Diego Padres. And I, I don't know what I was thinking at the time, but I was, I was living in San Diego and having a lot of fun and probably not quite deciding on what I want to do for a career. But I remember constantly thinking, I'm not getting paid much. The These tickets as compensation are more for my friends than me. And everyone who's been here has been here a long time and they have no plans of leaving. And yeah. so I always look back and wonder, like, in a way, I wish I, w- I was looking too far ahead. You know, I was thinking like, oh, you know, and then I was like, what are you, you're in your first year in a job. What are you worried about? Like what yeah. might happen down the yeah. line? Like, you know, it happens to a lot of people. It happens to a lot of entrepreneurs too. They're, they're just starting with an idea, making progress. And they're already thinking of like, you know, what's going to happen there? What's going to happen there? What do you, what are the keys do you think to, to just staying in the moment? Keys to staying in the moment. Number one is confidence, like self-confidence. Uh, you have to believe in yourself, right? Because it is, it is very, uh, it is very convenient to, to worry and think about like what's going to happen next week or my, uh, how am I going to keep this job? How am I going to stay employed? I want to do this. I want to, I want to have the security for the next year, five years, 10 years, whatever it is. So having the self-confidence uh, and the self-efficacy to think that like, all right, you know what, if it doesn't work out, I'm going to be okay. Uh, and I don't know what it is. I don't know what I, what my alternative is, but I know I'm going to be okay. Um, I think that's that's one. Uh, second thing is that, and this is probably something that I learned later. It's easy for me to now talk 22 years later. Um, and so I can't tell you where in the journey I, I came to this realization. It was probably about halfway through. Uh, but realizing that your job, your career, as passionate as you might be about whatever that uh, whatever that occupation is, it is just that. It is just what you do. It is not who you are. Who you are is defined by who you love, what you love to do, who loves you, who you enjoy spending your time with, how you define whatever your your morals and ethics and values are. That's who you are, all wrapped up, wrapped up into one. And yeah, it's really neat if uh, if you love your job. But at the same at the same time, it is just what you do, uh, and so you know, staying, st- keeping that active and, and conscious, it's it's easier to just stay focused in the present uh, and enjoy what you're doing. And you know what? If you don't enjoy it, and if you're worried about what's going to happen a year from now or two years from now, maybe you're not in the right uh, right job because what you can't do is let your career and let your job define who you are. Uh, you have to let 
your family and your friends and your values define who you are. Yeah, that's a great point. What are what are your passions outside of work? I mean, you seem to be you, you've got a lot on your plate. So it, it's like, I can't imagine you have that much free time. But what's your you know? I uh, I've got two young girls, four and six years old. I really enjoy uh, my family time as much as I can. Um, and so you know, whatever that might be, whatever we might be doing. Uh, we were down in Malibu this weekend for a wedding, and just you know, just bumming around Malibu with my kids and my wife. Uh, and trying to stay present in that, uh, that was, that was uh, really great. It's nice that, uh, my kids love, love the Niners and love Leeds. Uh, in fact, they were the ones who pointed out to me, it was funny that, uh, daddy, why do you, why do you like Leeds? The Leeds are Rams colors, blue and yellow. Like we should hate Leeds just like we hate the Rams. Uh, <laughs> I made me realize, oh shoot, you know what? You guys are right. Uh, but yeah, so spending time with my family is probably, uh, the number, my number one, uh, hobby and interest and passion. I'm the opposite. I realized that um, the Leeds colors were the same as the Warriors colors. And I'm like, wow, this is perfect. Oh yeah, it's great for you. <laughs> <laughs> so what was, back to the 49ers, so what was, um, yeah. you know, you've gone through a lot. I mean, you've gone through building a stadium, Yeah. you know, ups and downs that any sports team have. What were, what were kind of some of the biggest challenges, you know, that, that came along or periods of time where you thought like, how do we get through this? Yeah, uh, I'll say early in my career, there was more of a how do I get through this uh, periods of time when, you know, when I came on board, uh, it was 2001, 2002, and we were just finishing up our great 49ers run of the 90s. Uh, and we had mortgaged so much on our salary cap uh, that there needed to be sort of a resetting of our cap. And so when I started already being an outsider within pop operations coincided with the recalibration of our team and salary cap. So we went through uh, that period of time where maybe you were, you were more appreciative because those were the hard years. It wasn't, the game was over at halftime, but it was the other way around. Uh, I think I, I think I, I think I actually, I think I actually became a season ticket holder during those times. <laughs> 04 and 05, those were some tough years. Uh, you know, even 03, 04, 05, those were some tough years. Uh, but they were required years to sort of get our, our salary cap back in order and get our, our team back focused. But, you know, I endured a lot of criticism then, uh, both internally and externally, and just, just trying to stay focused and in the present and committed to, you know, what, doing what I thought was best for the team. Um, that was what I was always focused on doing. So that was one that, that I really think about. Um, second one was as we were, you know, playing in the oldest unrenovated stadium in the NFL uh, and trying to figure. And for 20 years, the Niners were focused on trying to or trying to figure out where to build a stadium and how to finance it and how to sell it and market it and all of that. Uh, and so, you know, when when uh, the York family gave me a chance to put me in charge of of this effort, uh, we both needed to build out our team, our organization. Yeah, I think we went from like 80 people to 300 people during that time and then figure out, you know, how to do this. That was a real challenging time because it was, there was a number of moments when you're doing something and you're not really sure if you're going to be successful, but you're just doing the best you can. Uh, you don't really yet see the light at the end of the tunnel. You're just plowing forward. Um, and, you know, we were, we had, to, we put together a great team and, and uh, with with Jed's leadership and vision as the, as our CEO, we we put this thing together and we built the stadium. Uh, and so that was a really rewarding time, but a time that was that was a challenge. Um, and now it's simply, you know, how do we stay sustainably competitive, where we can have a good football team year in and year out, where, where, with a chance to compete for a Super Bowl? You know that that's uh, that is uh, also the challenge right now. Is is uh, you know, managing the short term with the long term. How do you, there's so many layers to that, right? Because you have to manage it from a business perspective, but you've also got to explain to a guy who's doesn't have that much time left in his career why, well, we could, that might be the best thing for today, but we can't yeah. do that because we're worried about, you know, a couple of years from now. And he's thinking, I'm not going to be here in a couple of years. Like, how do you, I, I guess there's probably not an easy answer, but what's that dynamic like with, you know, the players that are like, I've got a short window to win now and then also building for the future and explaining to them how to prioritize that. Yeah. I mean, it's a delicate balance. You got to, you always want to be, have a chance to be competitive every year and have a chance to win it all. 
there's obviously a lot of luck in sports, right? Especially when you only have 17 NFL games or 38 Premier League games. There's a lot of luck that plays in good luck and bad luck. Uh, you just want to have a chance to be put yourself in a position where you have a chance to compete for the championship. You know, this sports thing, whether whatever sport it is, pro sports is built on hope, right? It's not just fans, but it's players and coaches and ownership and everyone uh, involved to have the opportunity to hope and believe that you can you can be successful that season. You just you have to bottle up that hope, and you but you have to build a team that's competitive where you know you have a chance to do that. We that's what we've tried to do with the Niners uh, is is set this up where you can every year we are competitive, but we also are thinking about uh, the long term and making sure that we have set this up to be able to have hope a year from now and two years from now and three years from now. Do you think do do the players and like the I guess the football side of things? Is it better to just be fully transparent with them on the business, like thoughts and reasoning, or does there need to be a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a wall there as far as, um, do they appreciate transparency or does it just drive them crazy? I, yeah, I think they do. You know, the leaders of our football organization, Kyle Shanahan and our head coach and John Lynch, our GM, I mean, they are tremendous. And I think what they have built there, the great respect that they have, they have built up with the, with our players is actually based on transparency and honesty. Um, they are open and honest and direct with our players, and our players appreciate that. They know that they will get a straight answer. It may not be the answer they want to hear all the time, but they're going to get a straight answer. Um, and you know, I really, I really respect that about John and Kyle is that they are just so open, honest, and direct with our guys. Um, and you know, sometimes that comes with some some uh, challenging times and challenging conversations. But over the long run, I think everybody, uh, all the players really appreciate that. Yeah. What about, what about injuries from a, a financial and business side of things? Like, how do you, is there like a, you know, I don't know, a formula you have in place of like, this is what we hope doesn't happen, but this, this is what we, you know, think there's a chance will happen. Like, how do you, it's so different than normal business, right? Where you have a product, you sell it, people like it here. You've got a product. It's, there's no way to guarantee that the product stays on the field, stays healthy. There's so many random things that can happen. Like so, so many random things. You try to do everything you can from a preventative standpoint, from a health and performance standpoint, from uh, how the players eat, train, sleep, hydrate. Um, you want to make sure that they're physically fit, they're emotionally fit. Uh, they they're speaking to not just uh, performance of football coaches on the field, but life coaches off the field, all of the things to, uh, to do it. But at the end of the day, it's still up to some bad luck. You and I experienced it with Leeds last year. I don't know if you know this, but we missed uh, more player games uh, from contributing players, starters and players who played over 25%. More games missed from our contributing players than any team in the Premier League over the last five years, this past season. Uh-huh. And that's why we were hovering around the bottom, just trying to stay alive. But because we just went through what was as unlucky of a uh, season injury-wise as anybody's had in five years, you know, yeah. and that's twenty teams in the Premier League five years. That's a hundred, you know, team seasons that we're talking about, and we were the worst out of a hundred. That's hard to do, right? Uh, but that's yeah. a bad, bad luck. Uh, but you just have to withstand as best you can. So the bright side is a record-breaking season. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, how do you, you know, injuries in all sports, but when you look at them, it's generally the most, the sports with the highest chance of injury have the kind of least guaranteed money. Like how, how do you, I mean, whether it's football or, or fighting, right? Like those are the things where, where they have the greatest chance of injury and they have the least chance of, of, uh, of getting paid if they get injured. Like how is, how is that like, uh, dynamic do you think the, the athletes in those sports are accepting of that are they looking at baseball players and thinking dude there's not much that can go wrong here is it something that they even think about or is it not it's just not really something that anyone thinks about within those sports you know that's a that's an interesting that's an interesting question i don't think i've heard I've, I've heard that before that's a really good observation um i think you're starting to see it more uh where a much higher percentage of football contracts are guaranteed than they were even just three years ago. Um, so that is starting to change. We also have more players, right? So there's 53 players on the active roster versus what, 25 in baseball, 10 in the NBA. Uh, and so uh, there's a lot more variance and risk. So I think that's part of the reason that players uh, sort of understand it. 
because there's just so many more players and so many so many so much more diversity in how you have to set it all up. Um, so I think that's part of it. But yeah, I mean, it's definitely. I've heard I've heard it quite a bit about comparing football players to baseball players because those baseball contracts are fully guaranteed, uh, and and yeah, it's that's a really interesting point though that that the greater risk of injury uh, is actually fighting too and lesser guaranteed contracts. It's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. Yeah, I think Dana White the other day someone was asking about fighter pay and and the risk they take, and he just said they get paid what they're supposed to get paid. <laughs> it was a yeah, interesting thing, but it, yeah. So soccer, how did, so you transitioned from football. Now you've got, now you've, you know, you, I guess, how did that process go for the, the 49ers first taking an interest in soccer and then, or football for those listening in the rest of the world. And then how, um, promotion relegation, what's, you know, that, that adds a whole nother sure difficulty. You know, I think, uh, the interest started because as we think about it, sports teams, uh, are all the same. It could be widget ball. It doesn't matter if a ball is popped or stuffed. The concept is still the same. You try, you know, you've got your players, you've got your front office, you've got your stadium arena, you've got concessions, you've got, uh, your social media following. It's all the same, right? Um, and you're just looking for, you know, really good assets and really good clubs that have, that have great bones. Uh, and so Leeds was just the perfect example of that. Um, I actually first, uh, kind of came across leads and wanting to do something with them long before we invested. I don't even know if you know this story, Nick, but it was probably like 2012 uh, where I just saw Leeds, a, a franchise that had such a great uh, and long history, uh, but had fallen on hard times. You know, they had been relegated actually a couple divisions and, uh, but still had a great global fan base. Uh, and, you know, 30 years ago or 40 years ago, they had won the equivalent of the Champions League or uh, and were the champions, the equivalent of the Champions League finals and things like that. And then had fallen on multiple ownership groups and got and got relegated a few times. Uh, and so in many ways, it sort of reminded me of the 49ers uh, from when I first started. You know, we had we had fallen on hard times, but it was it was a franchise with such a storied history. So I actually first reached out to the current the ownership at the time to just do a consulting partnership where we could just lend our experience. We actually announced a partnership, I think in 2013, uh, it was a, it was a Middle East investment company called GFH capital that owned the club at the time. Uh, that deal never material, it never really materialized where we did the idea sharing, but we even went so far as to announce a PR release press release. Um, anyway, fast forward, uh, where through a mutual friend, I met Andre Rodrizani, the current majority owner, uh, before he had purchased Leeds, I, he, he came out here. I gave him a tour of Levi's Stadium. We just talked to him about what we built at the Niners. Six, month, six months later, he bought Leeds. And I reached out to him and I said, shoot, I've been looking at Leeds forever too. It's really neat that you bought the club. We'd love to, I want to get involved uh, and help you. And so uh, we invested 15%. We bought a 15% stake at the time. Uh, and the rest is history. We've, we're up to a 44% stake at the, for the time being. Uh, and, you know, we'll see if, uh, where that goes from here. Uh, but it's just, it's, it's, uh, we see it very similar. It's just, here is a great club with a great history, a great following. Uh, we were fortunate to be promoted, uh, to the premier league in 2020 season or, and, uh, or after the 2020 season completed. And, you know, we're in our third season right now in the premier league. And I really believe that with that, uh, the future is bright for this club. They have such a great following. Um, we deserve uh, to be, much, you know, among the better teams in the Premier League and among the more popular teams. We already are among the more popular teams in Europe, uh, and so it's just it's really exciting to be able to be a part of that and and help that club both on and off the pitch of, of where they can go and get back to where they belong. With all the similarities, what's what's been the biggest difference you've noticed? Jeez, between- easy promotion relegation. Yeah. Right in the NFL, uh, you finish two and fourteen, and you're awarded the number one pick in next year's draft. Uh, right, and uh, in in over here, in in across the pond, you finish worst, uh, one one of the bottom three places. You get relegated uh, to the to the championship, and you got to fight all again, all over again, to try to get promoted. Uh, and so uh, that amount of jeopardy and consequence. Uh, that happens from having a bad season or a season in the bottom three 
uh, it is you are living on the edge of your seat. Uh, and so that part, that is that is a challenge. One other big difference, uh, and that is that, especially in Leeds, Leeds is a, is a tremendous city uh, in that it is a one club town. You know, it's the third largest metropolitan area in the UK, two great uh universities right in Leeds. And so it has a really, really um, devout fan base, uh, but is a one club town. And so it is much deeper and bigger than just being a fan of the club. Uh, people who who uh, are supporters, supporters of Leeds, it's actually kind of similar to how I just described Roundtable Pizza. It is like you are, Leeds is part of their family. It is a sibling. It is a mother. It is a father. It is a grandparent where you can make fun of Leeds and you can make fun of the club and uh, among one another in your family, but boy, nobody else outside the family better because otherwise you're going to defend it till you die. It is a family member, right? It is a much deeper level of fanhood um, than, than maybe it is in the States because it is just part of, it is like that little brother that you can poke, make fun of, but you protect at all costs, um, no matter what. And so that is a uh, much deeper level. And I think even us as as owners of the club uh, or players as players of the club or coach as coach of the club, we're just kind of holding the crest for the moment. We're just stewards uh, because the club is really owned by the community. Uh, and we just happen to be the stewards that are holding the crest for the time being. Uh, but we're going to come and go and it's going to be within, you know, within that city, within the fabric of that community forever. Yeah. Now, it really isn't how geographically close teams are to each other in England, right? And it so literally yeah. is the it's the city or the town against the. T- I mean, yeah, you know, there's there's as many people in a stadium almost as there are for well more than you would have for NBA and a little bit, yeah. you know, maybe a little bit less than you would have for NFL. Yeah, but like only a few miles apart from you know in in a lot of areas from another city. So it shows how what what percent yeah. of the uh, the community. And you're born into it. You know, if your mom or dad was born into being a Leeds supporter or a Chelsea supporter or a Liverpool supporter, that's what you are. You know, we, yeah. we have a great benefit where we are in that, you know, there's what, six or seven or eight Premier League clubs all within Greater London. There's only one in Leeds, right? So we've no. got a whole community uh, behind us. And that's what really makes the place special. And what's it been like as an American, you know, going in there? I mean, it's kind of a pattern you've got developing here. You're a 12 year old going into Roundtable. You're a non, <laughs> non-football player going yeah. into football operations, and now you're an American going into, yeah, into, you know, the best league in the world. How has that been? Because you got, you know, we've got examples of things that have worked out well, and then a lot of examples of Americans going in that hasn't worked out well. And so, obviously, you've got a leery, yeah, a, a leery public. I think a big thing is is we didn't just buy this as. Uh, to be uh, asset buyers and acquirers, to buy it like uh, someone would buy an apartment building and hope that it appreciates and then sell it a number of years later, never having even visited the apartment uh, apartment building. That's really not us. Like We're very passionate about this. Uh, we're there a lot. I was there for the first game. Uh, I live and die by each match like we just talked about at four in the morning, whatever time it is, we don't miss it. It is something we care about. Yeah, we want to help grow the club, uh, but we also... Uh, our supporters and fans of the club, just like all the other supporters. Um, and so maybe that differentiates us, differentiates us a little bit from some of our American counterparts uh, because we're just, we're present, we're living it uh, and we live and die by it, just like the supporters do. Uh, you and I chat during, before, during and after every match, right? Like we're just into this. We're not, this isn't just some like asset appreciation play. We're fans. We're, we, we, we did it first and foremost because we love it uh, and we're really into it. And we're wondering, you know, who our number nine is going to be for the next match. And like that, we care about it. And, you know, maybe not everyone is like that, uh, but that's how we are. Yeah. No, there's nothing like it. I mean, the, um, I mean, just the atmosphere, the crowd noise, the, you know, when I was a kid, you'd go back to England every, I don't know what it was, summer, I guess. And it was like, I always thought, that, you know, the British commentator could make, if you watch like, if you watch pool or billiards, in England, it's mm-hmm. the commentator makes it so exciting, right? So it's just <laughs> that, it's just those the way they the way they uh, the way they talk about the game, the crowd. You know, the crowd. It's like is genuine the way the crowd sounds. It's not like um, a lot of times. You know, we might have like manufactured just drums or the same chant yeah. over and over. Yeah, 
But there it's, um, no, it's amazing. It's actually interesting because football is probably the, American football is probably the closest thing to a sport where every game matters that we have, right? It, it, like yeah, basketball, baseball, hockey, it's hard to get super excited about every game because there's not a lot of drama around each one, right? Yeah, but, you turn it up or turn it down based if it's early in the regular season. Yeah, totally. Yeah, but football and football are the ones where it yep. does. So, all right, all this being said, um, two final questions. First, what's the tougher job? 12-year-old going into roundtable or running a professional sports franchise? <laughs> uh, great question. Uh, I Definitely, definitely the sports franchise because we're not just doing it for ourselves. There's such a, there's such a following and fanhood and every decision that you make positive uh, or negative or popular or unpopular is scrutinized no longer even the next day, but immediately on social media, right? Every decision is talked about quite a bit. And so, I mean, we, we joke around about it quite a, a lot too. Like we're making a decision, a few of us on a very important player move. Uh, and like within seconds, it's already percolating all over so- social media. And we're thinking to ourselves, gosh, was there a bug in our office? Was there a bug in the room? Like how, how are people already knowing, even almost before we made a decision, that the decision is forthcoming? You know, at least in the pizza restaurant, we were just like, nobody really cared about it other than if they had cert- if they got good pizza, good quality pizza every day. That's all that mattered. Here, people not just care about the final product, but they care about how the sauce is made. No. <laughs> and so that's, that's the part that makes it harder. Maybe Google or Facebook is responsible for soccer or, you know, sports rumors as well. The same way you 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 think of a product and all of a sudden it's in your Instagram. Yeah. It's the same, uh, the, the yeah. same algorithm. It might be. <laughs> what would you, uh, I guess I lied when I said there was two questions. There's actually three. What was the, okay. um, what advice would you give to a young person looking to break into the sports industry when they see, they see an industry where people are going to stay there a long time, organizations that don't, you know, there's nothing that would make an organization double in size from from year to year. What's yeah. the best way to kind of break in? So three pieces of advice come to mind for me. Number one is this is an insular uh, industry, kind of like Hollywood. You know, a lot of it is based on who you know, not what you know. At least that gets you in the door, uh, unless you get lucky like I did. Uh, and and so you need to make sure that if you want to do this, if you want to work in sports, you got to be dedicated and committed to it and continue to send out those resumes uh, to uh, as many people as you can. And ideally, to as many decision makers who would be least threatened uh, by someone of your caliber. Uh, and so, you know, go right to the top, go to owners and CEOs and presidents and GMs and head coaches and just, you know, just keep trying uh, and, and stay, stay committed to doing that. Uh, number two is is you got to see and be seen. You got to put yourself in a place where you can be visible and be seen. And so, uh, you know, attend uh, Major League Baseball owners winter meetings, attend the NFL Combine, attend the Super Bowl, be seen uh, so that uh, luck finds you and you find luck uh, so that, you know, you can be that person who is about who you know, not what you know. And then the last most often overlooked piece of advice I have is a lot of people think, you know, hey, I'm awesome. I want to work in sports. This part, you should, I'm going to send my cover letter around and you should hire me because I'm awesome. Well, you know what? Go solve something first. Go find some inefficiency in the market. Go figure out why you think running backs are undervalued or why you think sponsorship should be done differently. Go solve something. Uh, whether right or wrong, it doesn't matter. It it shows the the, hi- the hiring person that how you think and that you're thinking more, you're proactive and you're actually trying to be solutions oriented and use that little piece of analysis, a little short deck or a little, uh, you know, couple paragraphs on why you think whatever it is you think and use that as your the proxy for your resume. Uh, now, all of a sudden, when I get, you know, I, I'll get 100 resumes a week and I look through it, but the people who put something together as to, hey, they looked at this problem and here's a solution they came up with. It doesn't even matter to me if they're right or wrong. I get a little peek into their brain of how they think. And now all of a sudden, I'm actually, they're more memorable. And I remember, and I'm thinking to myself, hey, I at least want to have a conversation with this kid because he had he took an interesting, interesting perspective on a historical problem that maybe hasn't been visited before. So come up with a solution and use that as a proxy for your resume. Yeah, 
That's a great answer. I like that it wasn't a it wasn't an easy answer. You know, it was yeah. just keep going, keep getting yourself yeah. out there. And if you're not willing to do the work, it's 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 not going to pay off. What's the last question? What's the one the one lesson, the one piece of advice? You know, you're you want to pass on, you know, to your daughters and and just in general. What's that one that one thing that you uh, you think is the most crucial? If you for a career, just for whatever, you know, you got you saying, hey, this is this is the one lesson that I think, you know, yes, I guess, you know, the tone of the podcast, something career related, but just in general, you know, that one thing where you're like, if you stay focused on this, the rest will all kind of fall into place. Yeah. Uh, the one thing that comes to mind for me is uh, you got to have a spark inside for what you want to do. And it is so convenient uh, and complacent uh, or to be complacent and just continue down a career path because maybe you're making a lot of money or because it's very easy or because you're not sure what else you're going to do. But if that spark is not there within uh, and inside, then it's going to lead to an unsatisfactory period of time or career. Uh, We're just not content. Uh, And so really find that spark, whatever, something that you're passionate about. And if you don't have it, quit fast. And find something else because we spend so much of our lives in our respective career careers. And if you're not passionate about what you do, if you don't have that spark, it's just not worth it. Because like I said, it's what you do. It's not who you are. And so to try to connect those two a little bit is you got to have that inner spark. Uh, and if you don't have it, uh, you know, they say fail fast. I'd say quit fast. Go and go find something that you have that gives you that spark. Yeah, no, I think that's great advice. Well, I appreciate you, uh, appreciate you coming on. really enjoyed the conversation. Definitely, um, you know, I think the enthusiasm, enthusiasm, a word apparently I can't pronounce, that you, um, you attack everything with is inspiring to me. And, and uh, you know, I always uh, appreciate our, our early morning leads texts. And, and even for this podcast, it's got me, you know, ready to jump out of my chair. And I got I to gotta, <laughs> gotta get to work a little bit harder. So I appreciate you coming on. I know you got a lot going on. You got practice going on right outside your window. But uh, yeah, thanks for taking the time. Of course, Nick. I really appreciate it. That was fun. 